Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Our sermon verse today is from Acts chapter 11, verse 17, where Peter is talking to those who have accused him of breaking the law by walking into the house of a Gentile. And he says basically to them, who am I to hold back the gift of God? I remember once having a conversation with somebody who was sort of a uh, church leadership guru, somebody uh, who is wise in the ways of leading a church, and he wasn't familiar with with the Lutheran church so much, but we had a wide-ranging conversation, covered a whole lot of things, and I remember at one point in that conversation, he leans forward and sort of in a conspiratorial way says, you know who the real disciples in your church are, right? And I had no idea what he was talking about. I didn't know. Um, so being a little confused in the conversation, I did the only thing I could do. I leaned forward back in a way that was equally conspiratorial, and I said, yeah, I do. And he said, yeah. And I said, yeah, yeah, real disciples. And I said, and you would know the real disciples in my church, right? And he says, yeah, yeah, I would know the real disciples in your church. And I said, well, Real disciples in my church are the ones who who are baptized and believe in Jesus. And he looked utterly confused. (laughs) It seemed like he was wanting more. You know, something about all the progress these disciples were making, all all the hours they spent reading their Bible and praying and and living a, a pious life for all people to see, but in a totally humble way. And... I think that sort of summarizes our our struggle at times with baptism. A lot of the questions I got about baptism did sort of center around this one idea. What does baptism have to do with discipleship? What does baptism have to do with discipleship? You see, when we think about discipleship, we we think about the progress that we want to see while we're following Jesus. We want to be walking behind Jesus and turn around and see our footprints that have walked through deserts and up over mountains. We want to be able to, to look back and check that progress and say, yeah, We've gone a long way with Jesus. We've overcome much. Look at all the things we have done. Look at all the things we have seen. And yet, stubbornly enough, God insists on working in ways that are invisible to the human eye. And so it is that in baptism, the word of God is combined with the water in a way that we cannot see. You can put this water that we have here, which is from the same tap that uh, we baptize people in, which is tap water. And you can put it under a microscope and you will not see evidence of the Holy Spirit that way. If you lifted up that bowl from the font, you would see that it looks almost like a mixing bowl. Just a regular metal mixing bowl. And yet the Word of God works through such means. Regular, ordinary water. And for as much as we like to to look elsewhere and see dazzling lights and have bright visions and and all that, Peter, the Apostle Peter, tells us plainly in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, after preaching this sermon at Pentecost, remember that famous scene, right, where where people are gathered in Jerusalem and and, and tongues of fire fall upon the disciples, and and Peter uh, begins uh, preaching a sermon in the boldness of the Holy Spirit, and he starts off with that great line, I think that is really attention-getting, is standing there in front of a crowd of people who are watching this miracle, the Holy Spirit fall on these disciples and hearing everybody speak in their own language. Peter calls order to everyone, and he begins the sermon in this way. 
we're not as drunk as you suppose. That's funny to me. All of you are staring at me totally deadpan, but think about it. That's funny. And so there you have Peter in this sermon. After he preaches it, the, the, the people gather there. They're cut to the heart. They recognize that through their sins, they did indeed crucify Jesus. And they want to know, what, what do they do? What do we do? And what's Peter's response? Acts chapter 2, verse 38. That's his response. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at that verse. He says, repent and be baptized. It's a command. Be baptized. Every one of you. All people from many nations were there, gathered together in Jerusalem on that day. In the name of Jesus. When the name of Jesus is put on somebody like it is a baptism, that person becomes a part of God's family. That person becomes a sheep to the flock which Jesus owns. To have the name of Jesus put on you in baptism means that you're under his care, his protection, his nurture, as you are his sheep and he is your shepherd. And then he says, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins. What happens in baptism? Baptism is a washing. It's a cleansing. Through that, all impurities and all unholiness is washed away underneath the waters of baptism. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Somehow, someway, through this water, the Holy Spirit comes to the believer. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit creates faith in the hearts of of unbelievers. The Holy Spirit strengthens faith and protects faith in the heart of a believer. The Holy Spirit has promised to abide and dwell among Jesus' disciples. And the Holy Spirit is the difference between being dead in our sins and alive. Alive in the gospel, alive in Christ Jesus. So we get these things right away from even just one verse on baptism. We get his name being brought into his family, forgiveness of sins, gift of the Holy Spirit. All of that somehow, some way comes through this water. And so whenever we have Peter talking to the Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 11, he's describing an event where he had been taken to a man named Cornelius' house. This man was a Gentile. And he walks into this man's house, and there again he preaches a sermon, and there again a baptism follows Peter's preaching of the word. And so Peter is describing all this, and, and, and this idea is kind of offensive to the church in Jerusalem because for them it was an impure thing to do. It was, it was a crossing, a breaking of the commandment to walk into a Gentile's home. But Peter explains, who am I? Whom I to, to withhold the gift? Whom I to be a barrier to the people who obviously believed in Jesus Christ? So there, in Cornelius' home, he explains that he baptized. He baptized the believers there in that home. The gift is for all. And so we come across different questions. One of the questions was, you know, why is it that we say that, that 
you don't do anything in your salvation. You don't do anything in your salvation. That we can't earn our salvation, that, that salvation, when it comes to being saved, when it comes to that certainty of, of, you know, am I going to heaven and then later the resurrection, you know, that, that's God's work. We don't do a thing in that. We are utterly passive in that work. God does it all. So the question is, why is it then that if we, if we insist that we don't do anything in salvation, then why do we ask parents to bring their babies forward in baptism? Aren't we choosing salvation for babies by doing that? So if we do nothing, why are we doing something? If we do nothing in salvation, why are we asking parents to come forward to bring a baby forward to the baptismal font? Well, I think actually what we need to do is look at who is actually choosing baptism for the baby. Who is choosing baptism for the baby? Is it the parents? Are the parents choosing themselves salvation? Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, go into all nations and baptize them, right? Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus commands baptism for all nations. And I think you have to do a lot of tap dancing around that verse to say, yes, all nations everywhere, but only people who are over this age. I'll grant to you that, that nowhere, even in this verse or anywhere else, does Jesus say, go and baptize babies. But you have to do a whole lot of work to exclude babies whenever you're trying to interpret these things. All nations, all people, everywhere, all means all. This is the same Lord who said, let the little children come to me. And that word in Greek, when he says children, is paideia. That's infants, nursing ones. Jesus invites children to come to him. Jesus says, go and baptize all nations. And again, going back to Acts chapter 10 in Cornelius' house, who is baptized. Peter goes there. He's sent there by God. He preaches this sermon, and then Cornelius is baptized. His whole household is baptized, meaning all of his family, and also all of his servants and his servants' families. Again, you have to do a whole lot of work to, to move around the idea to say, well, no, Peter said, are you 12? Okay, great. That simply isn't there. We have whole households were baptized. It would be very hard to believe that not one of them included a baby or a young child. The command, then, to be baptized, the choice for baptism actually doesn't come from the parents. When Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, go and baptize all nations, or go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that is Jesus choosing baptism for the infant. So then what do we make of a parent bringing a helpless baby who obviously can't walk forward and decide these things for itself? Well, when we see that happening, we simply see parents being obedient to the command that God gave. God chose baptism for the infant already. The parents are simply being obedient to that command. Parents don't invent this for their child. God did that. Or we can look at it like this. When it comes to why we ask parents to baptize their children, we can, we can agree on a few things right away. One is God's word is all-powerful, right? God's word is all-powerful. And apart from that word working and operating in our lives, we are completely dead in our sins, right? Completely dead and helpless in our sins. We're kind of like, well, babies. Except the babies are alive, you know. 
But we are completely helpless. We are completely powerless when it comes to our salvation. And we are completely powerless when it comes to having somebody else believe. We acknowledge that too. I can't make you believe and you can't make me believe. I can't do a thing to make you a part of the kingdom of God. That is not my work. That is the all-powerful God's work. So God's word is all-powerful, right? We can't do anything, right? And also we would agree together that we as Christians are supposed to tell people about Jesus. Why do we tell you to tell people about Jesus if you can't save a person on your own? Well, God graciously allows us to participate in his work of salvation through sinful mouths and sinful lips and sinful vocal cords. God works to deliver his pure, life-saving and holy gospel to the unbeliever through an ordinary, imperfect human being. And I would say that if you're in conversation with someone and they're believing what you tell them about Jesus and they confess faith in Jesus, they say, you know what, I believe this is real. What would you then tell that person? I hope the next thing that you would say or very near it would be, you need to be baptized. So then, if we're looking at a parent bringing an infant forward for baptism, it's kind of the same thing. That if we are out evangelizing to other adults or at least older children, and sometimes they're the same, you know. Um, but if we're going out doing these things and we're acknowledging that we can participate and play a role in the thing that God does, then whenever a, child, a parent brings an infant forward in baptism, they're merely doing in-home evangelism in obedience to God's command. A parent bringing forward a baby into baptism is doing in-home evangelism in obedience to God's command. God is all-powerful. God does the work in baptism. But God calls us to obey him. God allows us to participate in his work in his kingdom. And that's why we ask parents to bring their children forward. That's why we encourage and strongly encourage parents to do that. So that God might work. Another question is, don't you have to believe first in order to be baptized? Don't you have to believe first and then be baptized? And there are verses that, that might make us think that way. I mean, Mark chapter 16, verse 16 says, all who believe and are baptized will be saved. All who believe and are baptized will be saved. But we can say actually that, that the ways in which somebody is saved is not limited to baptism. We know that in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Paul says that faith comes through hearing the word. So yeah, you can hear the word preached, and you can come to believe, and you can be just as much a disciple of Jesus as somebody who was baptized as an infant. That's true. We don't deny that or put these in opposition to one another. And we've already went over Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and we can go to many other verses to talk about how baptism does indeed do a saving work. So whether you were an infant or whether you were an adult who heard the word, if you were in faith, you are saved. God can work through the word. God can work through the water of baptism. God does both, and he does it all the time. But notice this, that whenever there seems to be someone coming to faith, whether you're talking about stories in the book of Acts, like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, 
or here in Acts chapter 10 where you have a household underneath Cornelius that desires baptism, or again, going back to Pentecost, there are people who come to faith as they hear the word preached, and they believe. But then what happens right after that? Baptism. Baptism on the day of Pentecost, baptism for the Ethiopian eunuch, baptism here for Cornelius' household. And why is that? Well, the word of God commands us to be baptized. Again, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized. Matthew chapter 28, baptize all nations. And so even for those who come to believe apart from actual baptism are then commanded to receive baptism. And then there's one other question we're going to deal with here. One other question. And I think this one speaks to the heart more than all the other stuff we've gone through. It was put to me, and I've heard it put this way before, but why don't we care that some people think that merely being baptized is all they need? And I think the question there is really saying, why aren't we brokenhearted over people who've been baptized in the faith, but then we never see them again? Why aren't we mourning the fact that there are many people who seem to say, I can do whatever I want in my life, and it's okay because I'm baptized. I can sin in any way. I never have to repent. I'm baptized. I'm good. I've checked the salvation box. So what else is left for me to do? And I will say that in regards to that question, that's not the first time I've received that. In fact, sometimes I sense in conversation that people even doubt whether baptism works at all because there are so many people that have fallen away from their baptism. Is it really doing what God's Word says it does? And I'll speak directly to that question about why don't we care. Indeed, we do. I mean, consider your own families this morning. Consider your stories. There are many people here who are desperately praying every single day that their children would finally come back to church. There are many of you here this morning that are praying that your grandchildren would finally receive baptism. And it hurts that it hasn't happened. And for those of you who have children and and grandchildren who are active in church, I bet you're praying every day that it stays that way because you know that the dangers are many, the temptations are many. And as a church, it does hurt. Every Sunday, it hurts. Every Sunday, it hurts. Whenever we see those that we baptized not here again, not receiving the word of God, whenever we see those who we've confirmed in the faith just disappear, it's frustrating. It hurts. It does break our hearts. It does. This is why as a congregation, we took the Growing Young Survey and why so many of you participated in it. We wanted to know how to reach these generations. It's why we're providing resources out there for parents to try and do our best to connect, to make sure that this happens less and less and less often until it doesn't happen at all. But I would say that for as much as the church in Jerusalem needed a reminder, needed a reminder that, that yes, baptism and salvation was for all nations, we might need a reminder that baptism and salvation is for all ages. 
there's a coffee shop that I go to on Thursday mornings, and I'm there. Usually, I, I, I write sermon there. Um, it's kind of kind of where I hide for a little bit, a couple hours on Thursday morning. And on the wall there, next to where I was sitting this past week, there used to be a big a big chalkboard where they I guess they had hired a chalk artist to come in and draw some fun things. But they got rid of that, and instead, what's up on the wall now, cut out of construction paper, are, is a question. It says, who are we? And then below it are taped or glued to the wall different trivia questions about the staff members. Who can literally crack a whip? Or, or who has worked here the longest? Just things like that. And, and the idea is to sort of engage you in, in a game where you can go up and talk to the staff and try to figure out who has done what, you know? get to know them a little bit better. But I wonder if we ask that question here, who are we? What our answer might be. Especially when it comes, again, to generations younger than us, younger than most of us. Who are they? Do we know? When we plan things as a church, are we thinking only about what makes us happy as adults? When we vote for things, is it the same question? Are we focusing and, and looking at those things? We need to repent. We need to repent because sometimes our focus is only on ourselves and what makes us happy. I am just as guilty. Who are they? The children, the youth that are among us. Each one of us can get to know them. Best, disciple, share our faith possible, so that more and more and more, we see that happen less where one walks away, one sheep wanders from the pasture, and the heartache will ease. I'm told that if a person is lost in the woods, it's likely that they're going to wander around in a circle. And the truth about us is that whether we're lost in the woods or not, we are always walking around in circles. It might be around sin. Say you commit a sin, and then you feel shame over that sin, and you feel guilty, and then that guilt kind of drives you back towards making that sin again. You know, And so it goes on and on. But even a, a believer in Jesus Christ walks in a circle. It just so happens that our circle is around the font, is around our baptism. The path of discipleship could be described simply as this. That, we're, that our relationship to God is restored through the waters of baptism. Our sins are forgiven. Salvation is received. We are God's children. And in that gift that we've received, there's joy in our hearts. And then there's gratitude over all the things that God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, though we have not deserved them. He gave them freely, and so there's gratitude. And then from that gratitude comes a new heart that does good works. A, a, a heart that desires Bible study, that desires fellowship, that, that comes to worship Jesus and rejoice all the, over all the wonderful things he does. A heart that grows in love for its neighbor and so on and so forth. And then we repent of our sins and we are restored and we have joy and we have gratitude and we have good works. And so it goes around and around and around our baptism. Time and time again. When we repent of our sins, that is to say we are sorry and freely forgive or freely receive his forgiveness, remembering that we have this identity 
that has put us under a state of grace where when we do repent, God freely does, does forgive. And then from there, there's joy, gratitude, and good works. So it goes. And yes, yes, it hurts whenever we don't see that progress in ourselves or even in others. It hurts. But if we want to go forwards in our discipleship, we have to go backwards. If we want to go forwards in our discipleship, we have to go backwards. Beginning every day at that font, remembering that we are God's child, that we have been baptized dead with Christ, raised with him to walk in newness of life, as Romans 6, verse 4 tells us. Each day we return to our baptism so that each day we might move forward in all the things that Christ has desired for us to do. Walking around in a circle, around the font, hearing again those words and promises, being assured of who we are in Jesus, that we might do works in his name. That is true discipleship.